Backed empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Backed to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty, and rewards points and gift cards. Go to BackedBakkt.com and start treating your digital assets just like cash. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. You need to check this out right now. A revolutionary tech startup has created a way for you to convert your Bitcoin and Ethereum into shares of real, tangible art. Think paintings by Banksy, Picasso, and more. You know, like an NFT, but in real life. It's such a game changer that they just became New York's latest billion dollar unicorn. Just go to masterworks.io slash scoop and see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And I'll tell you, I'm, it's been a dizzying day, right, with the CPI numbers coming in, indicating that inflation is gripping the market. At least that's what investors appear to be worried about. Oh, my goodness. Love when the data comes in from the Labor Department. And then, of course, we had Bitcoin hitting almost, topping rather, $69,000 a coin, suggesting that maybe the inflation hedge narrative has some sticking power. Well, we have someone on the other side of the mic who can definitely speak to the degree to which large investors are flocking to Bitcoin and the crypto market in general. We have Sean Martinak, Research and Portfolio Manager at One River Digital, the digital business associated with One River Asset Management. Sean, I'm sure you've been having a fun day over there at the firm. How's business? Absolutely, Frank. Yeah, business is good. You know, this is that uh, that question about what role is this going to play in people's portfolios in the long run, and it's it's a matter of uh, digestion in the markets, I think. So, seeing this kind of reaction from a price perspective, I think is uh, is an interesting. It represents an interesting moment in time, and it's uh, building on that narrative as it sort of penetrates the broader institutional investment landscape. Well, it does speak to the degree to which Bitcoin has now become fully plugged into the broader market infrastructure, right? I mean, when I was covering this space in 2017, it would move, it still kind of moves randomly at some points, but it shows the degree to which, you know, quant systems are plugged in, the data, the economic data comes in, and the market just reacts almost instantaneously. Have you sort of witnessed from your seat that maturation occur? I'm sure you guys have systems that are plugged in and, and buying and selling given economic data that comes in? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we're not actively trading this from that perspective. Uh, our business is much more focused on just making sure that institutional investors can gain the right type of access to the asset class. So it's absolutely something that we watch, but it's not a big part of what we're trying to accomplish on a day-to-day -day basis is sort of, you know, getting ahead of the market and being able to sort of pull value out of those signals. But I mean, what does it mean? It's a collective belief asset in the same way that many other things are, right? And so I think the question is, how is collective belief evolving? 
It could be well-calibrated quant systems that are ready to, ready to react, but those are baked by humans that say, this is the belief that we're going to place faith in, in the market. And then I think that it's also you know, emblematic of a broader swath of markets just choosing to own some portion of this asset in aggregate. So walk us through the business and its origin story, right? You kind of gate-crashed as this large institutional player, bought a large chunk of Bitcoin through Coinbase. Your CEO was on a show recently kind of describing how you tried to make that purchase without making too much noise in the market so you yep. wouldn't you know, get, get stomped on. Walk us through the history. Yeah. So One River Digital is really born of that trade. Eric, our CIO, CEO, was able to you know, manage that into markets in substantial size, probably the, well, it was, I think, the biggest institutional trade in Bitcoin and Ethereum at the time. What it marked was the beginning of a business model that recognized that there was demand from institutional players, but that they needed the right mechanisms to come in. So, you know, after that trade initiated the business, One River Digital became an independent entity and the staff started to form up around what kinds of products need to be created for institutional investors using their lens. And that's really my background as well, right? Before joining One River Digital, I, for the last, you know, for the majority of my career have been an institutional investor at the major Canadian pension plans. So it's that particular perspective of what are the right constructions of products? What are the right set of products at this phase of market development to make sure that more institutional players can gain access to the asset class? And then how do you evolve those products to increase the sophistication, to increase the opportunity set as we move forward. And that's really what we're working on on a day-to-day basis, trying to build the right menu and trying to build the right relationships from the right place in the market so that we can provide services that meet the tests of those institutional investors, which are a pretty high bar. Interesting. So you mentioned that you're not necessarily actively trading on economic data coming in. What does the day-to-day look like for the firm? Yeah, at the moment, product development and product launch is really where we're spending a lot of our time. We have a live Bitcoin product. We have a live Ethereum product. The Bitcoin product also has a carbon neutral share class. In September, we, you know, a lot of work went into launching an Ethereum staking product that could Mm -hmm. be institutional grade. And I think that that's a significant differentiator at this point as well. And then at the moment, we're building and soon to launch an income product for dollar denominated returns out of the crypto ecosystem, as well as spending a lot of time thinking about how index can be delivered correctly. And I think that's a particularly interesting part of institutional product development in this space. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different indexes products that are out there or indices products, however you want to say it. Where do you think you could add a differentiated value there? Yeah. Look, I think a lot of them aren't built in a way that's going to stand the test of time or stand up for institutions. There has to be a set of filters that are really high tests from you know a, a longer term view of regulatory appropriateness of how much data exists of what types of projects and you know protocols need to be filtered out because they have inherent difficulties in them i think i think a lot of things have been created from a purely market cap perspective in some ways and that's that's just not going to fit for the types of clients that we have. They want to be able to invest in something that has durability over a longer horizon. And this is an extremely fast-moving space. So I think there's a lot of nuance in trying to do that. Mm. What other types of products do you think you can launch just tied to tokens that are in that long tail of assets? Yeah, well, I think the long tail is the big question, right? How long is the tail that's appropriate for larger capital allocators? And where is there enough capacity for them to be involved? So we're looking at sort of a, think of it as like a core and a frontier index, uh, mm. and then down the road to develop ways of managing that risk better from an active perspective so that we can 
you know, capture the appropriate beta from the asset class, but also limit some of the volatility. How do you go about doing that? Just the sort of share of each constituent being set at a certain parameter? Yeah. I mean, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into picking the right mechanisms to make sure that you don't end up with something that's totally dominated by one or two coins in a, in a space where things can grow up very quickly. If it's mechanically done the wrong way, you can end up kind of positioned in, in an unproductive way for the long term. I also think there's just a lot of signal development from a quantitative perspective, looking across markets, thinking about the macro environment as well. Uh, looking at you know the relationships between different assets in the crypto in the crypto ecosystem and making sure that you can pull out the appropriate the appropriate information to be able to guide a ship that doesn't turn on a dime. That type of consistency, that type of longer vision, is really what's necessary to form an index that honestly can that we can benchmark ourselves to, and that other people can think of as a benchmark in the space. So, do you think the business looks a little bit different than a hedge fund and more like a you know maybe like a BlackRock or State Street? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think at the stage of development we're at, we're a hybrid business. We're native to the institutional space and native to crypto. And we're trying to bridge the two. And the goal here is really to be a pure asset management business and a fiduciary for those clients. At the moment, that really means getting first access in most cases to these products, to having some exposure on their balance sheets or some exposure in their portfolios. And then it'll evolve, I would imagine, quite quickly from there because the space changes faster than anything else. But I think that mm-hmm. the core goal is really just to serve as that bridge between the two and be pure asset management. We function as a fiduciary, clients first, without any conflicts in the construction of the business. How have you seen that client profile evolve or change uh, since launch? Yeah, well, I think it's just growth at this point, right? The launch of the business was at the beginning of this year. In you know the world of digital assets and crypto, that feels like a lifetime, but it's really mm-hmm. 10 months. So at the moment, it's connecting with the right types of groups and performing that role of an educator as a guide, as somebody that can you know offer and deliver, like I said, first steps into the ecosystem and then begin to communicate and iterate with those clients on what's going to make the most sense for their portfolios next and try to build those products with the tools and the components that we have inside the business. So it's kind of like taking in their questions and thinking about what products you can build around the questions they're asking most. What are they coming in and asking you about? What are they most curious about? I'm sure DeFi has cropped up. Yeah. I'm sure Solana has probably cropped up. Yep. The metaverse as well, especially given what has come out of the rebrand of Facebook to Meta. Absolutely. Yeah. So we also have a product called Digital Opportunities, where the first share class in that product is a Solana vehicle. So there is some exposure within the firm to you know, Solana specifically and, and an opportunity to be able to focus on specific tokens if that's kind of where demand and you know our capabilities start to align. I think that it's really a matter of, of moving at the pace of the decisions of institutional players. It's not the type of thing that is going to be able to tilt allocations for a flash in the pan. And I think there's a lot of players in the venture capital space that are on the front edge of everything that's developing. And so as DeFi rapidly iterates, they're deploying capital into those you know, early stage protocols and trying to figure out how to position themselves and to move to the next and to figure out how to capture as much of the ecosystem as possible because it's uncertain what's going to develop. Our role is to sit a little bit further back on the maturity curve and to work with our client base and our potential investors to make sure that they're 
educated on the asset class, that they're up to speed on how it's interacting in markets, that they have points of access to be able to do things in size and scale that will make sense and actually be meaningful for their portfolios, and then to drive forward from there. I mean, if you look at DeFi right now, there are no major institutional players that feel like they can comfortably come in. We're still waiting for regulatory clarity and you know some examples of folks that are participating and feel that it's done in a safe manner in those spaces and we've got near on the horizon the the launch of aves pro mm -hmm. uh, DeFi application with aml and kyc wrapped into it and i think that's going to be an excellent experiment at the beginning of the transition to institutional DeFi. but uh, it's highly uncertain at this point we still don't know what it looks like there's a lot of uncertainty that hangs over the market especially from a regulatory perspective I think one thing that has kept certain institutions on the sidelines, banks maybe specifically from holding the coins themselves, yeah. is this question of, well, when might the rug be pulled from underneath me? How have you sort of navigated that regulatory environment? Yeah, look, I think very carefully, uh, as much as engagement as we can get, trying to take a bit of a conservative approach and say, you know, whether it's tax accounting, whether it's you know, what we deem to be regulatorily sensitive, you have to make a call and you have to say, this is how we're going to participate. You can't, in our seat, it would be difficult to, you know, completely exclude a significant portion of the market because it's uncertain, but we're going to have to say we have to take a conservative approach because that's what our clients are going to demand from us. Yeah. But then at the same time, you know, that does limit you and what products you can offer and then get fees from. Um, Absolutely. But at the end of the day, no one wants the ire of Gensler unleashed upon them. No. And I think, look, the regulatory environment, from their perspective, they have some massive challenges in front of them. If you think about the pace at which this environment has grown up and the speed at which products are being created, I, I just don't think that that's a speed that our regulatory process is currently set up to be able to operate at. It's not what it was designed for. So that tension I see as natural, and I see us as living in a place in that tension where we might have to move a little bit more slowly but that by moving a little bit more slowly, we're actually meeting the needs of a customer base that just isn't involved in these markets yet. If you think about the size of crypto is material, but the institutional investor penetration in these assets is still at a very small level. And I think a lot of it is because they just operate at a different pace. The decision-making operates at a different pace. The level of care, the level of confidence in how things are going to be interpreted just has to be higher. And that's really our goal. We serve as a crossover firm between these two worlds, trying to bring them together. And it takes time. It's interesting, you know, hearkening back on the maturation of the market, it's hard not to posit that the institutions are already here. When you look at some of the headlines, you look at who's on the cap table of some of these equity deals, yep. Dan Loeb's fully in, Anthony Scaramucci's fully in, Paul Tudor Jones is fully in, it seems. But maybe that is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, that's how I'd interpret it. Walk us through like what that whole glacier underneath that tip looks like. How do you anticipate penetrating those markets? I think that those markets, you have to think about who are in those markets. The truth is, you know, in the long, in the long run, when you digest that whole iceberg, it's everyone. Yeah. So if I think to, back to my career, right, I've mostly built and managed investment products for tens and hundreds of thousands of retired teachers and firefighters and other you know, public servants and just a wide swath of the population that has put their long-term faith and trust that their financial security and sustainability is going to be managed by these institutions. And that, I think, is really the long tail of digestion here. It's not 
individuals and their PAs making a few decisions, and it's not really flexible, you know, wealthy individuals, family offices, hedge funds that are serving a client base that are willing to take much higher risk. I think those two things are, as you said, the tip of the iceberg. The sort of area of the market that's under the surface, pension funds, endowments. Yeah. To what degree has that market been penetrated? Is it 2%, 5%, 10%? I know probably don't have an exact number, but... I think between 2 and 10% is a perfectly good number. It's a matter of the timeline for education and the timeline for decision-making. Those organizations are careful. They're careful because they manage the money of all of those people that we just referenced. So, you know, they don't make these decisions lightly. And when they do make these decisions, they tend to be made in very large dollar amounts, dollar amounts that don't make sense in the context of, you know, everyday trading in markets. And so those allocations have to be managed and have to be carefully thought out in terms of the timeline that they're relevant for. And it just, again, from working inside institutions like that, it always takes a little longer than you think. And it's always done a little more carefully than you would expect it to be. And that's the right way to do it because you're managing people's monies through generations. You're trying to make 20, 50, 100 year decisions. I feel like, and maybe this is something we can explore, the endowment opportunity is pretty massive. I mean, I don't, I don't know if oh, yeah. my listeners have seen some of these headlines. It's not necessarily crypto related news, but you look at University of Michigan, their endowments grown to 17 billion, picked up 40.6% during the fiscal year. You look at Princeton endowment up 47% for the fiscal year. Brown University, similar story, generated 51.5% investment returns, sitting on tons and tons of capital, and they've made really significant returns. I don't see how that doesn't flood into crypto, and it, it really hasn't yet, but I feel like it has to. Where else are they going to park that money? Yeah, I think the problem of having too much money is endemic across you know the global economy right now, and I think that's an excellent point. I think they have to enter crypto in the long run because this is one of those few spaces where there's going to be real growth. There's a lot of challenges in in the economy more broadly, but you know the rapid and continued digitization of the way we interact with each other and how we create and transmit value. I mean, this is one of the most fundamental changes that we've seen from a technology perspective that I can point to. And I think that these endowments would not want to be leaving that change out, even from, from a benchmark perspective. If you just think about around the world, which sectors, which industries, which types of technology are going to create growth that's going to allow them to keep pace with their demands and the ability to leverage those endowment funds for the goals that those institutions have with the pensions for in retirement security. I mean, this is going to be a necessary place to have a substantial allocation because it's going to become an increasingly important part of our economy. So how do you pitch them? Is, is that exactly the pitch? Well, look, I think the pitch, is, the pitch is multifaceted, but it really boils down to this is, this is an area. Yeah, I think that's an excellent starting point. This is an area of fundamental growth at a time where fundamental growth is difficult to find. You know, that growth doesn't just come from ingenuity and innovation. It also comes from efficiency gains. And I think that's an incredibly important thing in, in our world overall. You know, whether businesses can be run in a more lightweight fashion, whether infrastructure can be reduced so that it's more sustainable in the long term. These are the natural positive evolutionary impacts of creating a, a more digital economy. There's problems that are going to emerge with it for sure. But I think that it's it's a force multiplier in a lot of ways on our human ingenuity and creativity and the ability to deploy things on a global platform. And to me, that's that's the core of the pitch is that's something that, you know, everybody allocating capital needs to participate in. Mm. 
is it mostly you're going out and pitching them or are, have you begun receiving inbounds from pension funds, endowments and the like? Yeah, no, it certainly goes both ways. I think that people are hungry for more exposure to the space and education in the space. And I think they're searching the landscape for partners that, that fit for them. And obviously, there are different demands. As you said, there are folks that really are looking to put their capital to work in the highest risk, highest return opportunities because they like the balance of those factors right now. They see a tremendous amount of innovation, and that's their primary focus. And then I think there are others that are saying, look, this is broad participation here is important to us. But you know, we, we put these things in portfolios alongside other assets, and there's a volatility here that doesn't make sense in the context of the things that we're going to park it alongside. And we have to think about what does that mean? And how are we going to make sense of that so that we can participate in something that is available and early, but liquid and at a global scale and be able to grow its role in the portfolio as it matures and hopefully reduces, you know, naturally would reduce in volatility as that happens. Back is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Back puts the power in your hands to get your crypto loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send, or spend them using BACK. Get started today and get it together with BACK. Sign up at BACKBAKKT.com. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. A new application of decentralized finance just unlocked a multi-trillion dollar industry. How big? How about $6 trillion big? High net worth investors have used this often overlooked alternative investment to build multi-generational wealth. The investment is contemporary blue chip art, and this billion dollar unicorn lets you invest in art similar to investing in a company's stock. Masterworks.io offers fractional ownership of real paintings by artists Think Banksy, Buscott, and Warhol. So instead of needing tens of millions, you can invest tens of thousands. Some of their offerings have sold out in hours, but you can get priority access today by going to masterworks.io slash scoop. That's masterworks.io slash scoop. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. I think if you look at this morning's news headlines yeah. around the CPI data. I mean, there's so many. I mean, you see it when you go to the grocery stores, you see it when you go fill up your tank, right? Yep. I mean, this is, it's getting easier to weave the narrative or, or to sort of make that sales pitch to folks because now you can sort of see it. You see it every day. I expect that'd be especially tangible to folks managing teachers, police officers, pensions and such. Absolutely. How, how do you think the macro picture, how would you sort of describe the way in which that's going to serve as a, a tailwind for not just your business, but for Bitcoin and yeah. crypto broadly. Yeah, well, look, inflation sensitivity for, if, you, if you're making retirement promises to people and you're trying to manage money for 100 years, inflation sensitivity is hugely important. A lot of these plans are offer inflation protection to their plan members. That's part of the guarantee that they need to be able to construct portfolios against. So first of all, do they care about it? Absolutely. One of the core mm -hmm. things they need to Can't care just about. Buy tips. We need Bitcoin in there. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And then the, I'd say the other thing is this is really a positive feedback loop, right? You see the inflation. The inflation has an impact on, you know, let's use Bitcoin as an example, its price. People start to rely on Bitcoin's price, whether statistically or fundamentally, as an ability to offset some of that inflation. So they change their asset mix and their portfolios to have more of it in there. And then inflation surprises again, and then it reacts again. And, you know, it's not a it's not a guaranteed mechanism, but it's a mechanism that's starting to become more linked in a reliable way. And as it becomes more reliable, people will rely on it. So what's your perspective um, of the macro picture right now? Do you buy into this idea that inflation is going to be transitory or is it here to stay? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, but I have to admit to not having a lot of expertise yeah. there. We have, you know, our head of research is, Marcel is phenomenal at this. We have a woman, uh, Lindsay, who runs an inflation portfolio on the traditional hedge fund side there deep experts in the nuances of reading the tea leaves of inflation and trying to understand when it's temporary and when it's a surprise. And those are entire professions trying to do that really well. When I think about it, I just, I know that there's too much money and that we have to find a way to grow our way out of the problem. And when I ask myself, where's that growth going to come from? I think that growth is going to come, you know, in large part from this industry, sector, asset class, whatever you want to call it, this fundamental technology that allows people to do things in a way that is more efficient and more effective and more creative than we've been able to do them in the past. So to yeah. me, it's about, it, you know, find your way to get the right exposure here. That's going to differ depending on who you are and what your objectives are. But it's it's an engine of growth for the global economy. And it's important to, you know, the next, the next 50 years of how humanity is going to learn to create value using its capital and its human labor. You managed one of Canada's largest pension plans. What tools will these types of institutions need to wade into crypto? What else is missing for them? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a question we ask ourselves all the time. And just to be clear, I didn't manage the pension plan, but just a portfolio within it because they're, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars kind of thing. And so, but yes. Well, I'm um, just trying to, you know, hype you up here. You're pumping me up. I really appreciate (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah. So what tools, I mean, that's why in a lot of ways, I don't think I have a lot of exciting stories to tell you about, you know, very fast moving portfolio tools, you know, investment strategies that are designed to take these inefficient markets and pull out thousand percent returns. That's not what we're focused on right now. And it's not, I don't think what's necessary as part of these toolkits. It's People about- just want exposure. They want exposure right now and they have to do it safely. They have to do it at the right size, which if you're a $200 billion pension plan, the right size is a big size. And so you can't go into the 50th through 100th market cap altcoins and say, just give me a portfolio of that because you'd you know, you would stomp all over the market as you entered. Uh, you have to be thoughtful about where is the growth going to come from? Where do the binary risks come from? And where are the things that are a little bit more long duration in terms of their importance in the ecosystem? And I think that's where people will anchor themselves, especially in the first wave of, of entering these markets. You think there's any way for them to capture some of those juicy yields that exist out there? I mean, when we think about some of the trades, like the basis trade, which has long been a moneymaker for folks, or if you go back even further to the 2017, 2018 era, when you could easily cash grab between the differences in price between these venues, there's nothing equivalent that you can capture? Yeah, look, I think there's a there's a spectrum. I always think there are the folks on the front edge that are going to deploy the least amount of capital and take the most amount of risk. And they're able to capture the whole thing. And yeah. you can invest in hedge funds that are doing this now or other types of investment vehicles and try to get, like you said, really 30, 40, 50% yields or sometimes astronomical yields that don't even rhyme with that. Sometimes infinite yield. Infinite yield. Yeah. Which grinds down pretty quickly, but absolutely. <laughs> so 
Or at least a second, they're infinite. Yeah, you get a couple seconds worth of inf- infinity and it feels really good. But <laughs> I think that, you know, that front edge of the curve is also, it's financial market experimentation in a lot of ways. And I think that what we have here is there's a, there's still supply demand gaps in terms of where the money is, where the dollars live, you know, digitizing all of the money and digitizing more of the assets and eventually all of the assets. There's still inefficiencies that come from how slow that has to happen and how much growth is happening within the digital part of the, you know, the financial economy. So I think there are very attractive yields. I think there are very attractive, you know, directional returns that are available. But the juiciest stuff, the stuff that really captures, you know, crypto native headlines, to me, those are those are not the types of things you can do in enough size with enough confidence that you can package them up and be able to deliver them to an institutional investor that's really trying to have you know, significant impact on their portfolio. Walk us through how you kind of got convinced. Yeah. How did you fall down the rabbit hole? So I, I feel like everybody, not everybody, a lot of people in this space just have sort of a permanent inferiority complex because they're not the earliest one they know of their friends in the space. And that's absolutely me. I was mostly involved in quant strategies, building portfolios of them. And in 2017, because I was in that intersection of technology and finance, I think I really was just fortunate to meet some very generous people in in the crypto space who wanted to explain some interesting ideas to me because they wanted uh, more people to be enthusiastic about it. And they could tell it was something I liked, you know, without knowing what I was talking about. And interestingly enough, I, I didn't kind of come into crypto through Bitcoin and then Ethereum like a lot of people did. I really started as kind of an alternative layer one geek. You know, I, the first thing I think I ever read in depth was the Polkadot white paper. So for me, it was this kind of midway entry point into the technology and what was possible and how it might compare and contrast to other things that were growing up around it. And they were early and you couldn't see them live. And then I kind of worked my way backwards from there again with just the support of people that, you know, recognized an interest and said, look over here and look over there and let's include you in this discussion. And, you know, obviously, uh, even at that time, the institutions, like, for example, the institution I was working at at the time, we had a working group related to what is this going to mean in institutional portfolio? Should we do something about it? Obviously, the enthusiasm for that working group waned with the crypto winter that followed. But, you know, for me, the way I really got sucked in was picking away at it over the years while things were quieter. And then when the pandemic hit and DeFi summer and all these things, the, the things I had originally attached to and thought, well, wow, this is brilliant technology. These ideas are foundationally important and fundamental. They started to become reality. The other networks started to launch. I started to get a broader perspective on what was possible and see how this technology was going to attach itself to, you know, in a lot of ways, we people will refer to it as an asset class right now. And I think that's fine for now, but I really, it's not an asset class. This is a, this is a type of technology that happens, that affects things at such a core level that we're seeing it spread out and have impact across, you know, a large percentage of the sectors in the economy, different industrial verticals. So for me, that's what is truly exciting. And that's the inescapable rabbit hole. Once you start to see that, you know, it's not one implementation and it's not a pure attachment to the highest possible level of decentralization or some other feature that belongs to a particular network and, you know, uh, the cultural maximalism that feels good when you're right and the price is going up. It's that this matters in almost every digital aspect of our lives in the long run. And we're watching the process of it being digested and implemented right now. And it's just enabling unbelievable experimentation and creativity. So I look, that's an enthusiastic pitch for why I think it's important. But once you see that, you can't look away. 
we're seeing a digestion of this concept of the metaverse take place. It's, yeah. it's funny, I was reading the paper this morning and it was a piece on Facebook's move into the metaverse, the name change, obviously. The reporter wrote something to the effect of, you know, when the metaverse comes to fruition, as if it was this thing that doesn't, yeah. or it exists. I mean, you can go to these virtual worlds, but it's still so early that people don't have a good conception or have not yet conceptualized what this is or seen it, right? Yeah. But in any case, uh, I'm curious if that's becoming something that your clients are asking more questions about and wondering how they can get exposure to that corner of the market. Yeah, look, I think those questions are certainly beginning, but I don't think we're yet at a place where, with the exception of maybe buying some of the earliest projects that represent kind of metaverse assets that are starting to gain momentum, I don't think you can create an institutional investment product for it right now. Mm. And it may not be that far off, right? The pace of development in this space is, it can't be underestimated. The, over the course of the last 12 months, we've seen something go from, you know, where it was to where it is, which is a really substantial difference. So, you know, I, if I were to project 12 months forward, I'd probably miss the mark by a whole bunch because it's path dependent and a lot of things will happen along the way. And the lead tables could shift. You could have somebody that absolutely looks like a dominant player emerging from nowhere right now. Totally. Uh, and it could get eaten, swallowed up by two or three others or fashions or trends could change that really uh, attract consumer attention and start to drive revenues to other business models. I think we're in very early stages there. What I do think is that it's, it, it can't be ignored how much attention it's going to get. So for me, when I think about the metaverse and I think about what digital assets and crypto primitives bring to existing in a space with other people in a digital environment. It just seems like it compounds how much time and attention we spend on our screens and in our information universe, because your bank account's going to live in there with you. Your value is going to live in there with you. And it seems like such an incredible draw. The example that I think about sometimes is, you know, we're starting to build these game environments where people will own relative, you know, maybe starting at low value NFTs, and then they'll get bigger and bigger in terms of the value and the personal attachment to them, and you'll be able to use them. And so if there are ways to play in those games where where owning the NFT is just something that allows you access, that's going to be great. But I think through the lens of kind of like the Super Bowl, what is this going to look like in its version of the Super Bowl? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what, okay, so a little geeky, but one of the projects I track loosely is Star Atlas on the Solana network. I think that's mm -hmm. interesting. I can just imagine a year or two or three years from now, the FTX army squaring off for full transfer of all NFT value in some space war against some other army and, and knowing that millions of people around the world would watch and that they would have their value committed to this process. Like, can you imagine having your value on the field with the players at the Super Bowl. It yeah. seems like it's it's just a, a magnifier of how important these things are going to become in our culture and how vastly more important they will be to the people that care about them in those communities that surround these projects. And that's just a tiny example of one implementation of a game, you know, that makes up a, t a little corner of the metaverse. So I just see that being replicated everywhere. And it seems like it's, you know, foundationally important. And it kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier, which is it's all interconnected. Yeah. It's not just one asset is uh, an inflation hedge and another one does X or does Y. The digital world as we know it, or as we will know it, will all be underpinned by this same thing. The same thing, this concept of value. And when you think about how, what it means to portfolios, you can own a vastly wider array of things that are going to ideally appreciate in value or that you assign value to. 
and you'll be able to do it in a low friction way. I, mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. Even your identity. I mean, even, even yeah. sort of, you know, your social standing and social clout can be digitized and then part of your portfolio construction. Absolutely. And I think we've seen, you know, early versions of that with the way the creator economy, people can build a brand and monetize that brand through things like YouTube. And But it's going to be very different when you own that brand. You're not just using a channel to monetize that brand. And when you can, you know, eventually maybe fractionalize that brand, maybe sell it to close followers or people that come at it from a purely financial perspective and say, we want to own a portfolio of these brands. I mean, making that easier opens asset classes that aren't even, that are just not investable today to being investable tomorrow. It's interesting. I, I haven't really thought about it from the perspective of like looking at a portfolio, like clearly what play to earn, metaverse, the sort of web three. 0.0, as, as we call it, will allow things that weren't necessarily assets to become financialized. Yeah. And then now they're part of, now you have to think about how they fit into the broader portfolio. You know, it's kind of weird. You know, uh, you know, Parallel is a gaming NFT project, right? They did a big card drop that a lot of people were paying attention to. Are NFT cards going to be something that when I, you know, look at my portfolio, they're there. And if I'm a portfolio manager, I'm, I'm helping my client think through how NFT cards are fitting in with their other in, in-game assets and Bitcoin and digitized stock, et cetera. Like, it's, it's funny that all of this is going to fit into a financial picture, yeah. even though they might seem disconnected now. Yeah. And that this sort of, you know, hyper-financialization of everything is creates a lot of value. I mean, if you have some of these assets and you can use them as collateral or you can start to exchange them in ways cross asset class that were never possible before. I mean, you start to have the ability for different types of expertise to express themselves in asset selection. You have the ability for portfolios to say, we're going to take a tilt towards cultural assets, but we're going to do it in this way that has financial tooling built around it because we can build sophisticated products. We can take short-term views on them. We can take long-term views on them. I think it's such a fundamental shift that it's even difficult to conceive of how much of an impact it's going to make. And I don't think it has to just be art assets or cultural assets. It's just that many things can become assets in a way that wasn't easy before. And many of our standard assets will be able to be moved around and placed in the optimal position based on what your objectives are. And, mm. you know, leveraged, like, I don't know, the, the, the thing that I'm so inspired by is what people call it mechanism design, but the idea of building better rules for things, building ecosystems where we function better as a collective, where we can engage with each other in healthier ways, where positive feedback loops start to create value for the people that are involved. And any of these assets that we're talking about, whether purely financial or things that represent cultural value, eventually we'll be able to fit into these mechanisms that are being designed and really create just a different type of financial economy. It's going to be a weird world, though. Uh, yeah, pretty uncertain. Yeah. Sean, this was a really fun conversation. You definitely you definitely have, you know, I, I can feel the crypto nativeness within you, which is a refreshing sensibility for someone that would be sitting in your seat of portfolio. Yeah, look, I've got a foot in both worlds, and so does the firm. And I think that's really what we're trying to accomplish, for the institutional players to really come into this space and be comfortable you know, with significant portions of their portfolios here. It's going to take firms like ours and others that will spring up to be able to guide them and to, you know, to iterate with them and to be partners with them over time. So that's our objective, and that's 
kind of the role I play. And I, I appreciate you saying that. That's nice of you. Where can our listeners learn more about that? Where, where can we learn more about you? I think the best place is the, the One River Asset Management and One River Digital website. Just go there. There's you know a lot of market commentary. There's uh, longer form pieces. Eric's podcast from Bankless will be up there. So I think that's the best way to get introduced to the firm and then just reach out to us. Anybody who's interested, absolutely Any happy to. Any of you guys on the Twitter, on the bird site? I'm more of a listener than a participant. Uh, I'm pretty careful, just kind of monitor the space and, and try sure. to pay attention to smart folks that have things to say in there. But uh, yeah, and then I'd say the other thing too is, you know, because we have a foot in both spaces, it's, I think, a good opportunity for me to say, there are a lot of people with the same kind of backgrounds I have that are, you know, close to the crypto space, and they're looking for ways to enter. And we have absolutely just an A-plus team, you know, phenomenal, talented people who have a background in traditional finance and are also native to the crypto space and really trying to build something that is going to be the right fit for institutional investors. So if there are other people listening to this that think that might be a good fit for them, I'd encourage them to reach out to us because we're in hiring mode. We're trying to grow a great business and we need great people. What type of roles are you hiring for? It's pretty much across the gamut. I mean, everything from deep technologists to asset managers to folks that understand the operations side of the crypto world, which is in a lot of ways, fundamentally different than traditional finance. And then also people that are, are savvy on customer-facing roles and might want to be interacting with some of these institutions and helping in the, the education process and the onboarding process. So it takes all kinds. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you okay. again for stopping by. Ladies and gentlemen, The Scoop will be back with you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.